Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Hacks dedicated Second World War air power podcast head shopping with me, Matt Bone. The North American aviation P-51 Mustang is an aircraft of legend. The popular history is of an aircraft that was created in just 100 days, was ignored by the U.S. Army Air Force, and was a disappointment until that magical day it was mated with a Rolls-Royce Merlin engine. But the question is, was the Allison engine Mustang really so disappointing? As author, historian, and history hack returnee, Matthew Willis's new book, Mustang, The Untold Story, shows... The Mustang was not quite the damp squid we've come to believe, but it was a hit with the crews from the off. It was just the aircraft the RAF needed, and this was all before that magical Merlin showed up. So, Matt, how have you been? It's been a while since episode 166 on Toronto. What have you been up to? Ah, hi, Matt. Um, I've been, uh, well, I've been finishing off this book on the Mustang, which um, I've been working on for a long time. Um, It's getting on for 10 years since I started work on it. So it's, it's, it feels like a long journey just coming to an end. Um, I've been working on, on other stuff. Can't stay too far away from naval aviation. So um, the Bristol Scout has had my attention for a while with its, uh, uh, being the first aircraft to sort of make an operational launch from a ship at sea, first land plane, I should say, and various interesting stuff like that. So, um, uh, yeah, but the, the Mustang, um, which is a bit of a departure for me, but it was just a, a, an absolutely fascinating aircraft. And as you said, it's, it's one of those aircraft that once, we, once you get into it, you start to realise that so much you thought you know about it is is wrong. So, um, so, so that was what made it particularly special to to look at. This is decidedly unboaty for you. So, this is going to be quite fun. Yeah, it is. It's um, you know, I don't just do do boaty planes, but um, but but this one is a particularly not boaty plane, and uh, and yeah, it, it's sort of. I just sort of fell into working on it, um, really, and it was only ever going to be like a short-term thing. Uh, it, was, it was something I was as, was commissioned to do, as I say, nearly ten years ago now. Uh, and the idea at the time was, I'll just do this thing, and it'll just, you know, it'll bring some money in, and it's a bit off the the um, the usual run of things for me. But I'll just do this. Well, it was going to be a pair of books, but um, uh, you know, fairly sort of straightforward stuff on the Mustang. And as soon as I got into it, I started to find these things that, oh, well, actually, that's not what we thought. That's not what we thought. As soon as you start hitting the primary sources, and even really a lot of stuff that's in the published material 
uh, that perhaps hasn't necessarily been drawn out too much certainly isn't in the popular conception and you know the one thing that uh, the one thing that I do enjoy with with any sort of study of, of aviation history really is those areas where you know we think we know we think we know it all and then it turns out that that once you start examining uh, sort of from the from the root of it again that actually there's a different story there than the one that we were told and there's one there are stories that have been a, a little bit ignored or brushed over and you know that's that's just a red rag to a bull as far as i'm concerned definitely you kindly sent over a, a, a copy of the book which i've had a little read before this and it is it is fascinating i've i've always fallen into that trap of thinking oh it wasn't wasn't anything until the merlin and then of course in my research you start reading about the takar ops on on d-day and they're just absolutely mm. mind-blowing and then yeah. you realize that wasn't the fancy merlin engine one that was the mm-hmm. Allison. so yeah yeah and you know by that time it was aircraft that were several years old uh, airframes that were several years old that had been worked hard and you know they'd they'd, they'd been there you know many of these um mark ones particularly that had been there sort of almost from the beginning of uh, of um, raf mustang operations and um they they'd led a hard life and and they were still going strong uh you know long after normandy and you know that that kind of gets forgotten really i mean yeah you, you sort of you know second tactical air force we think of um, typhoons obviously and you know spitfire mark 14s and then getting into meteors and things like that and it's uh, you know they were relatively small number of the these allison mustangs that were still hanging around in in northern europe after you know, after the invasion, but, you know, they were doing vital work and, and actually the RAF was kind of sorry it couldn't have more of them, you know, even even by this point, an aircraft that was sort of, you know, getting on for three years old. And, you know, it, it's this is a sort of occasionally in other stories, you know, these these Allison Mustangs pop up where, you know, there was a book a few years ago about the, the Spitfires used as dive bombers uh, against the uh, V2 operations and uh, actually the the mustangs were used quite heavily in identifying the targets and then in doing the, all the photo recon after the, the the spitfire strikes and sometimes in the middle of them you'd, you'd have a, a photo recon aircraft stooging through in the middle to sort of you know keep a record of this this raid and see actually how well the uh, the spits were dropping their bombs but this is kind of we've come in right at the end there um this is um we're we're see- we're seeding the conversation so people yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah <laughs> we're starting in medias res uh, there are all these areas and actually it was it was an aircraft that had you know really widespread use it was in in use in in northern europe it was uh uh, you know the first single seater to operate from Britain to to cross the the border into Germany, uh, and then you know it was in use in the Mediterranean, in North Africa. Uh, you know it was in use in uh, the Far East, uh, in the you know, China, Burma, India theatre. There was a small um, selection of types there, so you had basically about four variants of the the Allison Mustang, which were quite closely related. And you know I'm, I can't think of that many other aircraft that were made in relatively small numbers. Um, you know, you're talking sort of really, you know, a thousand odd that, that saw such widespread service um, in different parts of the war. And I think it's, uh, you know, again, an aircraft that doesn't, it doesn't really get appreciated just how, just how much it did. And it was really punching above its weight in terms of the number of airframes. It, it, it you know, wherever it turned up, it, it made quite a pivotal dif- difference. 
so that's uh, you know all those things were were interesting to me and the things that we you know the things that we think we know about it insofar as people you know aviation historians in the second world war even kind of think about it much at all uh, and you know it, it's it was something that as soon as i you know scratched the surface of it it was um it just became more and more apparent that that we needed a proper history of just those allison engined variants and and what they did and how it all how it all happened and again also the 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 men who made a success of it as well as it just being about uh you know nuts and bolts i i think we've we've touched on a lot of the myths there already haven't we you know the the, the big mm, one being mm. that it was nothing until that magical day at farnborough when yep it was decided to, to give it a go but mm. just just as we're going to pop some of these as we go through i hope what are some sure. of those what are some of the myths that we're hopefully going to pop as we we go along the sort of big ticket items that everybody thinks about these aircraft well there are there are so many and and they sort of touch every aspect of the the uh, the allison mustang story really the first one as you say the big one is that it wasn't very good with the allison engine and actually there are there are elements of it that were better than the Merlin Mustang. And this is something that I think a lot of people don't really appreciate was that, that in some regimes, in some, for some tasks, the Allison Mustang was better than the Merlin Mustang, in some cases considerably better. Uh, you know, there are myths over what it was called, um, what different versions of it were called. And, you know, this is actually, there are elements of this we'll probably come to that, that sort of debate that rages today that, that we haven't ever really quite been able to pin down from the documentation. Uh, you know, there were myths about how it came to be. And you mentioned that sort of 100 day kind of, you know, that sort of totemic figure that that shows how quickly it was it was produced. And that's that's, again, been something that's been quite difficult to, to narrow down. Uh, you know, there are myths over the USAF not or USAAF, as it was at the time, uh, not being interested in it. There are other myths that the, the USAF was really interested in it but didn't have money in the right budget. Uh, so this was how they created the A36 dive bomber was as the story goes, they didn't want a dive bomber at all, but they had money in the attack budget. So they, they used this to cleverly buy a fighter, which the other version of the myth has it that, that, you know, they overlooked and weren't interested in. Um, so, you know, this is, uh, this is, again, it's something that, um, that there are so many uh, sort of elements of the, the story of the, the Mustang's creation um, and uh, the the you know the Allison versions of it in particular, which which was sort of the first ones that the the US got their hands on, the same as uh, the same as the British, and you know the, the, it permeates every every aspect of the of the aircraft's development. And you know you can there are tiny myths and there are great big myths, um, and I think part of the problem is this sort of legend of the Mustang which is now that's such a legendary aircraft, the very, very few aircraft sort of attain that kind of status where, because the narrative of it is so strong and in, a, in the same way that British have this narrative of the Mustang, which was only existed because we ordered it and it was only good after we gave it an engine. And at the same time, the Americans have their great myth of the uh, of the mustang their great legend of the mustang i should say because you know not all of it is untrue it's just the way it's framed is framed as a narrative uh, of this uh, this great aircraft uh, that was created in double quick time that had all these new technologies on it 
that allowed the bombers to go into Germany that was there in that kind of, you know, death blow of the, of German industry when the, uh, you know, the, the B-24s and B-17s were, were flying right into the heart of Germany and just pounding, you know, the bombers were pounding it day and night and the aircraft that made that possible was the Mustang. So, you know, there are, there are these narratives, these myths, these legends that you kind of have to break down before you, get into the real history i mean i find the real history no less remarkable than these narratives it's just that these are the stories that we've grown up with and it's you know it becomes very difficult to to challenge them and in a sense you know i'm not coming along to say you know that one aircraft is a bad aircraft or another aircraft is a good aircraft it's just that we've been looking at these things with slightly the wrong colored spectacles and you know, it, it doesn't hurt to have a new look at these things. And the Allison Mustang, you know, there's a lot there that, that people want to look at. Um, there are some remarkable um, stories. And the the dive bomber version, uh, which, you know, actually did remarkable work in the, in the Mediterranean as an attack aircraft. And, um, you know, it, it's all these things which, which kind of get brushed over and um, it's just worth us having a, a look again in the round, I think, because again, it's it's there are some aspects of it which which have been looked at, and uh, you know, like Peter C. Smith, who's written a lot on dive bombers, wrote a book on the the A thirty six, the dive bomber version of the Mustang, which um, you know, again, we, we'll we'll talk about this when we get to the Mediterranean. It was never called the Apache. Um, well, let's knock that one absolutely on the head right now. The name oh. Apache is completely spurious. So it, it's kind of, you kind of, as you get through these things, there are so many of these myths and it's like, well, where do you start? I'll leave you to guide the conversation because otherwise I'll just leap in and start listing things. The Apache thing is always a pissy because I think it's a great name for an aircraft. It is. Yeah. It is. It's true. But let, let's, let's start at the beginning um, with that hundred days and a rather remarkable designer of which there's some mm-hmm. interesting myths have come up about him as well. Well, yeah. Indeed. Um, Edgar Schmuid, who uh, was the chief designer for North American Aviation. He was of uh, German birth um, and had um, grown up in Germany and um, had his, um, his first introduction into the aircraft industry in Germany in the 1920s. Because of the situation with the aircraft industry in Germany after the First World War, where there were so many restrictions and the, the industry was really quite small until the 1930s, um, he sought work outside of Germany and found his way to Brazil, um, where he started working for um, an aircraft company that was owned by General Motors. And through that, then found his way to the United States, um, where he began doing design work for um, Fokker, um, Fokker's US subsidiary, which at the time re- was becoming more and more of a, uh, an autonomous company. Uh, you know, for a while, then that was bought by. Um, General Motors, um, and uh, and then through a ver- through a process of of kind of separating from from the parent Fokker company and through becoming more autonomous, and then it eventually became uh, North American Aviation, and it moved to California, which uh, the, at the time um, meant that Egesh uh, had left the company because you know he wanted to stay where he was on the east coast of America. Um, his his wife didn't want to move. Uh, so he worked for the Belanca company for a while, much smaller company, tended to make bush planes and, uh, you know, sporting aircraft and uh, an aircraft like that. Uh, then tragically, his wife was killed 
and he you know there was nothing then stopping him from from going to california and joining north american aviation where he he started to working for them in the in the sort of mid to late 30s and north american aviation was one of these companies that um you know it was it was typically american it was a really kind of it was like a young company it had this sort of young energy uh you know it was they wanted to you know they had a lot to prove they wanted to do an awful lot sort of you know from the beginning so they were sort of creating these modern aircraft almost coming from very small beginnings to, to suddenly get massive contracts for particularly training aircraft. So the, uh, the AT-6 is obviously their, you know, was their big kind of breakout aircraft that, that was, um, you know, got them noticed. Uh, and it got them noticed by the British, particularly uh, the British Air Ministry, who was on the lookout for, uh, for training aircraft to, to meet the needs of the expanding RAF. And, you know, and they started working at work on uh, bombers as well. Again, sort of really with very little experience in this kind of aircraft. You know, there was a sort of a transitional bomber, which they designed, which didn't really work. But then that they learned an awful lot from, from that to create the, the B-25, which, you know, was, was one of the most important aircraft of the Second World War, you know, built in huge numbers and, you know, very, very effective. Again, it was a typical, typically North American aircraft in that it was relatively straightforward. It worked well, you know, it had sort of modern features where it needed them, but otherwise it was, it was focused on practicality. You know, they, they had, they built amazingly practical aircraft, North American, um, but without compromising where it mattered, which I think actually was one of the, the key, the, the key secrets to the Mustang success. Um, was just how practical it was. But um, but yeah, so that was Edgar Schmerd. But the one thing that he hadn't done when uh, the British came calling uh, in, in uh, you know, 1939, 1940, he hadn't designed from the ground up uh, to, to sort of detail design to prototype stage a fighter aircraft. Um, that was, you know, a completely new new job um, as far as he's he's concerned. So I think another thing about the Mustang is, is even more remarkable is that it was it was uh, North America's first real fighter. You know, not quite its first fighter because you know there were the, there there was this earlier attempt, but you know that was really there was an aircraft called the NA50, which was basically just a a sort of a, sl- a lightly fighterized version of the AT6, which was done as a sort of cheap export fighter for for small air forces and it was used by sort of you know some uh south american air forces and there was a version of it that was used i think by the thai air force that was a that was a trainer turned into a fighter that was that you know it did not start from the ground up as a fighter aircraft uh so you know for for Schmerd to do that and his first his first real job and to come up with the mustang uh you know it's yeah, even R.J. Mitchell had a misfire before he did the uh, the Spitfire, and uh, you know it it it, uh, it just kind of came from nowhere. So the hundred days you mentioned, uh, I think it's actually you know like a hundred and something days. Um, I can't, you know, this is something that I've kind of I've pulled out of my head because you know when we looked into it, we found it wasn't really true. It was one of these myths that um, that came about. And when you start to look at those various versions of this hundred and something days. Uh, which is that that when is it from and when is it to uh, myself and my uh, you know research partner uh, Bob Sickle, um, who's a guy in the states who 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 knows you know far more about uh, the the P fifty one than ninety nine point nine percent of of people. 
we started looking into this and you, you, you kind of think, well, there's different versions of it. There's, there's from the time it was first ordered to the first flight of the prototype. And, you know, that's not a hundred and something days. And there was when it was first ordered to the first rollout. And that's not quite the, the amount of time that it said as well. And there's, oh, well, there's the time that the contract was signed because that was different from the first expression of interest uh, to, to one of these various things. And basically we couldn't make this, this hundred and something days fit. Uh, we couldn't ever quite get, get the, the, well, where's it to and where's it from? And, you know, this is North American publicity. A lot of the myth-making was done by North American, and it's, it's fair enough because it was their aeroplane. And, you know, there was all of the publicity after the war that, that, you know, they were building this legend for themselves. They were also trying to kind of ease other people and other organizations out of the, out of the picture, which, again, it's what companies do. And, uh, you know, it's people kind of setting up their own legacy as well. And, you know, there are certain figures from... Uh, from North American, uh, you know, Dutch Kindleberger, um, who was the uh, the guy in charge, really. You know, Leland Atwood, uh, who was one of the chief engineers. And, you know, the, the chief aerodynamicist, Ed Hawkey, and people like that who were sort of, you know, had one eye on their legacy. And, you know, they were pushing their angle of the story. To go back to the beginning, 1940, uh, the war suddenly going very badly with the uh, the fall of France or the towards the fall of France. Um, before this point, the British have not been terribly impressed by American aircraft. They've not been especially favourable about what they've gone over to see um, in terms of fighter aircraft, which, you know, at the time you've got things like the Curtis P-36, the early P-40, which is just coming through, which hasn't actually flown at the time, but it's the design is there and it's it's kind of available to see. You've got the kind of the Grumman fighters, uh, you've got the, you know, the Brewster fighters, the um, uh, the Buffalo and, and things like that. And the Brit- British Air Ministry thinks... America's a little bit behind the curve in terms of fighters. It's interested in its trainer aircraft. It's interested to an extent in its bombers, but it's not terribly interested in in fighters. And then you get May 1940. Uh, Germany invades France and Belgium, and suddenly they're tearing through these countries, and it looks like we've got weeks until Germany has overrun France, and all our projections go out the window. You know, we think we've got France as a buffer between us and Germany. We think we've got France as a as a powerful ally with a large modern military with us. And suddenly those things don't look like they're happening anymore. And then, you know, you've got the worst case scenario. You've got the, the real kind of doomsday scenario that uh, Germany's going to send its bombers over from French airfields and they're going to be able to knock out the British aircraft industry in a matter of days or weeks. So suddenly we've got to, we've come from this point where we're not that bothered about US aircraft to the point where we need any aircraft, any aircraft that are vaguely modern, up to date, and you have half a chance of, of countering the Luftwaffe. Uh, whether or not they're the ideal thing that we want doesn't really matter. We just need them and we need them yesterday. So British have sent have already sent an air commission over to to the US to, to look at what we can get from them. Um, what they've been trying to do at the time is, you know, buy the stuff that we're interested in buying, but even to the extent of saying, well, can can we use your factories to build our stuff? Which the Americans quite understandably say, uh, uh-uh, not going to happen. Um, but you know, we pushed that for a while, and then it comes to sort of May June 1940, and things are looking very very bad. 
and we're starting to look at what we can go and buy. And the French have already started buying stuff from Curtis. Um, they've bought P-36 fighters. Uh, they've, they've bought some P-40s, bought some Grumman fighters. Um, and when France falls, Britain takes over those orders. And it makes sense to try and extend them. The US are being quite accommodating. They're, um, they're saying, well, actually, we have these rules on the, the aircraft that we'll release for export, but we're going to relax those rules. And, you know, they're not just, just doing this for sort of, you know, because it's the right thing to do. The, uh, the American government realizes that they've got golden opportunity to have the material that their aircraft designers and companies are developing tested in the crucible of European air combat at zero cost. In fact, even to get paid to do it. So this is something that's actually extraordinarily attractive to, um, to the American government. So we go over, the British Air Commission approaches Curtis and uh, says, we'd like to buy some of your new P-40 fighters, please. Um, Curtis says, yeah, sure, but uh, we don't have the capacity to build all of those that, that you want and the ones that we're already building for the US um, Army Air Corps, as it is at the time. They start to look for other companies that can license build the, uh, the P-40. And one of these companies that, that the British are already familiar with through their large orders for training aircraft is North American Aviation. So they approach North American uh, and say, we'd like you to build uh, Curtis fighters, please. And again, this, this is actually kind of you know, another one of these tiny myths. The, the, the story is actually is P-40s um, that they wanted to build. There was actually a new fighter that uh, Curtis was developing at the time uh, called the P-46, uh, which was a, a sort of a development of the P-40. I mean, if you, if you see a picture of it, it's basically like a, a smaller, slightly neater P-40. And this was to be powered by a new version of the, the Allison uh, V-12, you know, V-1710 engine, which was called the F model, which had um, a different reduction gear and various other you know, slight modifications. Uh, and it was the reduction gear that made the big difference because the earlier model uh, that was in the early P-40s um, wasn't that reliable. And certainly Britain had lots of problems with, with their, their early P-40s up to the C model. But this new model, um, Allison, looked quite promising. And, uh, so the British Air Commission said to, to North American, we'd like you to build these uh, P-46s, please, because um, we've ordered hundreds of them. North American... Uh, Dutch Kindleberger had a word with Edgar Schmuid, and Kindleberger says to Schmuid, the British want us to build P-46s. I think we can do better than that. What do you say? And Schmuid agrees that he, this guy who's never designed a fighter aircraft before, can, in I think 40 days was the time they were given to, um, to produce a design, create a fighter that's better than Curtis can do. Now, bear in mind, Curtis is the, you know, they've been building fighter aircraft, single engine fighter aircraft company since the early 1920s. Uh, they had their, their hugely successful Hawk series of biplanes. They transitioned to the monoplane relatively early. They transitioned to the all metal, uh, you know, stress skin monoplane quite early with the, with the P-36. And although, you know, Europeans aren't that impressed with Curtis, they are, in the US terms, they're the granddaddies of the fighter aircraft. They're the people who have all the knowledge, all the expertise. You know, they keep winning competitions to supply the US uh, Air Corps with, um, with fighters. They are the people to beat. You know, they are, they are the sort of 
you know, they are the A game in fighters. And this guy from a relative, what's well, still a relatively small company, who's never designed a fighter before, says to his boss, I can do better than that. And he does. And this is the first part of the story where, you know, by rights, it should sink without trace. They should, they should, they should produce a design. The British should say, nah. And, uh, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And uh, all go on their way. But uh, Schmerd has a number of things up his sleeve, which enables him to, to perform this, this feat. North American has that feel of a, a modern tech startup, isn't it? They're, they're pushing the envelope. They're, they're jumping on everything that they can. And they just know that they're, you know, they're lighter, they're more agile, and they can, they can do it. And I guess the, the next bit Schmood's got is he's got a lot of vital research from the late 1930s, which gives him an edge in developing this new aircraft. Yeah, absolutely. He has kept his finger on the pulse of all these developments that have been coming out of uh, aeronautical theory in the last few years. And, you know, there are some big, big changes that have, that, that have you know, are coming through all the time. And this is perhaps where companies like Curtis um, fall down, is that they're relying on their considerable experience and they're perhaps not looking at the huge, the really lightning pace of development that's, that's been going on in, in theory over the last few years. You know, there are things that are, you know, that have now passed into legend on the, on the, in terms of the Mustang, but North American, they got there first and crucially they made it work, which not everybody did. And just, just to sort of briefly go through, through some of those developments. I mean, the one that gets least attention is that uh, Schmurd uh, used a process called conic lofting to, to develop the fuselage. And this is where basically all of the surfaces um, on the sort of the main fuselage section of the Mustang um, are a section of a cone. So, you know, they're, they're aerodynamically sound. They, they give kind of minimal disruption to the air, but it's, it's only single curvature. They were one of the first aircraft to almost be built from the outside in. So they had quite a thick skin and the whole thing was built around the, the skin rather than the sort of traditional sense where you build frames and then you attach the skin to the, to the side of it. So they're quite a thick skin. So the internal framing doesn't need to be as heavy and also it just holds, it holds its shape better. So you're thinking there already of potential mass production and, you know, being produced in large numbers by people who don't have huge amount of, of skill. Uh, and easy to use, you know, with easy to introduce mechanization on. Uh, so that's one that's one development. You know, he doesn't he doesn't create an aircraft like the Spitfire, which is is just covered in double curvature, uh, and you know requires a lot of specialist tooling and specialist knowledge to produce. Uh, you know, simple simple shapes, but aerodynamically efficient. Uh, the second one is the the laminar flow wing, which obviously you know is now the way it's spoken about is that is is almost like it was such an obvious thing, and uh, you know North American did it first, and of course it worked, and you know big development. But this was a sort of you know the timing here was crucial because um, the NACA um, had been looking at this, and they looked at this some years. Before. Just to interrupt for those uh, yeah. who don't know, who are mm -hmm. the NACA? Uh, that is the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, um, and they're the forerunner of NASA. Uh, so they're basically the big uh, research uh, organization for anything to do with aircraft in the United States. Um, so they're the, the people who are producing, you know, lots of kind of like open source knowledge, I guess, to be employed by aircraft designers and manufacturers. And one of the things that, that, uh, that, that they've been very successful at you know, for, for, the, for the previous decade is uh, wing airfoils. 
um, and they've been developing a, a series of, of wing aerofoils, you know, for all different applications that have been, uh, you know, used on all kinds of, of different aircraft. The Spitfire has an NACA aerofoil. The, uh, you know, I think the Typhoon has an NACA aerofoil. It certainly does. Um, you get your five pounds for mentioning the Typhoon. <laughs> no problem. Um, I'll see if I can get a third one in later on. Um, <laughs> it probably won't be so positive. Uh, but, you know, anyway, I will come to that. One of the things that the NACA has been looking at is uh, these laminar flow aerofoils. And just to explain what laminar flow is, airflow exists in three states. Laminar flow is, is where the air moves in smooth layers um, and it moves in in smooth lines and um, it's it's undisrupted and it's um, it, it kind of the, the layers kind of flow smoothly over one one another transitional flow is the next one where the flow is that laminar flow is starting to break down um, and it's starting to form eddies and then you have turbulent flow where it's completely broken down and it's just all forming vortices and uh, you know random eddies and spins and swirls turbulent flow is very very sucking of energy um, it's very hungry for energy it just draws all that energy that you're pumping in through your engine and it just wastes it in the air so the longer you can prevent airflow from becoming turbulent the more energy you save, the faster you're going to go. The simple idea with the laminar flow aerofoil is to, to move the point at which the airflow starts to break down further back on the wing. Now, this is an idea that had been considered, you know, some years before, certainly in the 1920s, but the NACA and various other organizations, including in the, in the UK, the National Physical Laboratory had done some work on this. They looked at aerofoils where you move the, because, you know, a traditional aerofoil is a teardrop shape. It has its maximum point of thickness about a third of the way back, and then it tapers cleanly to the trailing edge. The, uh, the idea here was to move that point of maximum thickness further back. The aerofoil is widening for a greater part of its width, and the air stays attached. Um, there's nothing asking too much of the airflow, so it doesn't break away. It doesn't become turbulent. And the, those various organizations had, had tried testing these aerofoils in wind tunnels um, earlier on and had decided that they didn't pr um, produce any, uh, any advantage. So they kind of left those to one side. Later on in the 1930s, uh, the state of the art in wind tunnels had improved and it had continued to develop. And then you started to have things like compressed air wind tunnels and even some of the first kind of transonic wind tunnels was starting to sort of arrive at that point. But um, they, they'd realised that, that actually the, the reason these aerofoils hadn't shown any advantage was possibly because of inefficiencies within the wind tunnel. And so it turned out that actually uh, when they, they tried these things again in a more efficient wind tunnel, suddenly you started seeing improvements. And, you know, this was very, very new knowledge at this time the NACA had produced, they hadn't done what they usually did. They hadn't had time to, which is to produce a whole series of um, aerofoil designs at all kinds of different thicknesses for a series of different applications. For air. So, you, you know, you've got an aerofoil that works well on a transport aircraft, one that works well on a bomber, one that works well on a fighter and so on. The NACA didn't have that. They, did, they couldn't um, hand an aerofoil to, to North American and say, here, this aerofoil will work perfectly on a fighter and you can just use it off the shelf. 
but so that was the uh, the, the second big develop, uh, aerodynamic innovation on, uh, on the Mustang was the the laminar flow wing. And, you know, I'd say more about that later on, but I just want to get to the third one, which is the Meredith effect. A British aerodynamicist uh, or scientist um, by, by the name of F.W. Meredith um, had uh, noted this effect whereby using a sort of a nozzle, so a narrowing gap for the air to flow through and then heating it up um, as it exits would produce an effect where you you know you it produces thrust and usually the, the the radiator on an aircraft is the source of considerable drag because it's just sitting there in the airflow it's not doing anything except you know acting as a parachute and sucking air away you know it's it's uh, it's acting as a brake but you need it there to cool your engine down but it also produces heat so what Meredith um, realized was if you could use the heat from the radiator within this nozzle effect uh, you could actually um, recoup quite a lot of the energy that you lost to the drag of of the air hitting this radiator and you know i'm sure like aerodynamicists will tell me i've got that completely and utterly wrong but the crux of it is you, you get some free energy if you can utilize the heat from the radiator and put that back into the airflow in such a way that, that you then gain something back from what you've lost to the to the drag of the radiator. Same principle as, as a jet engine, isn't it? It's, it Essentially, it's yeah. It's heating yeah. air up and then squidging it and shooting it out the back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, very much so. Um, and again, this was something that was that had been known about for several years, and you know the British had looked at it and concluded that um, actually the amount of heat that you get from a radiator is not really enough to get a significant effect. Uh, you know, it, it, it's really at the very, very low level of that kind of effect. And what Meredith was essentially talking about was a jet engine. You know, in, in terms of you know if you can get enough heat in there, then then you know you will will get a hell of a lot of free energy back to the extent where you know even something like the um, the SR71 uh, when it's traveling at you know sort of Mach 3 plus it is getting most of the energy from the uh, f- from the design of the the nozzle and the um, uh, you know the spike within the uh, within the jet nacelle than it's actually getting from the engine so you know it, it, it's a powerful powerful thing but uh, you know people thought it's not worth bothering about um again north american kind of had the the wherewithal to look at this and say well actually where can we get this to work and you know even if we get a little bit of free energy that's better than nothing so that that was really the three main innovations that 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 came through on this design you know as we say schmurd had never designed a fighter before um this was true he'd never taken anything from clean sheet through to prototype before however he had been keeping tabs on the latest developments and you know according to people who worked with him you know he was designing little bits of fighters kind of in his own time almost and you know he was designing like installations and sort of things like a cockpit layout various things like that you'd need to design to design a fighter he'd been thinking about and developing a an element of it and then putting it to one side so that when they finally got this this order this was how they were able to uh, to react so quickly and to produce something that was uh, you know state of the art in a very short space of time and you know although we say uh, the hundred and something days was was a myth actually it was a remarkable turnaround um, when you consider how long Curtis had been working on their fighters that it, you know it was really a, a remarkably quick turnaround that they produced what was essentially the final Mustang design in a very very short space of time details about it changed but you know the main elements of the airframe and the form 
uh, we you know we're all there really in that first in, in that first design. So that was kind of how the Mustang came to be. And you know the British were impressed, and they they ordered uh, ordered a number of these these aircraft with one caveat: they weren't quite so convinced that they were just prepared to leave Curtis out of it altogether. So they basically demanded that Curtis, that uh, that North American um, acquire a certain amount of data from Curtis on the uh, the P forty six, and there was probably some on the P forty in there as well. Just, you know, in order to ensure that they could produce something because they'd promised to produce something that was as good or better. And, uh, you know, so they had to buy this information from Curtis, which actually what had been going on in the background at the time was the US Air Corps had been showing, you know, they'd they'd been kind of getting a bit cold feet about the P-46. This new version of the the Allison that had come through, um, Curtis had proposed, will say, well, if we fit this in the, in the P-40 airframe, we can give you a lot more aircraft, and we think that actually the performance will be similar. And so that's how you, you get the P-40D version of the, the P-40, you know, the, the Kitty Hawk in British service, and that, you know, which becomes the definitive P-40, really. And so that kind of almost came about by mistake. Uh, so, you know, Curtis at this point are looking at losing a lot of their investment on the P-46. So actually, you know, they get a bit of a bung from the British. You say, you know, you've got to sell this information to, to, to North America and you've got to buy this information from Curtis. Curtis are happy enough to sell it because this aircraft's a little bit of a dead duck at the time. Uh, the Americans are happy enough for them to do it because they're not really interested. They're not, they're not so interested in the P-46 anymore. So really kind of everyone's happy. Probably not North American. North Americans, you know, to them, it was a bit of a waste of money. And again, this sort of this narrative at the time has come that, you know, they didn't get anything from this Curtis information. And uh, and yet the sources from Curtis say, aha, you copied the P-46 because you got this data. And there are superficial similarities between the P-46 and the and the Mustang. You know, superficial is as far as it gets. Um, it, it's really... The radiator was in the back of the fuselage um, in the in the P forty six in the way that uh, in the way that it was in the Mustang, but when you drill down into the detail of it and and really, the beauty of the Mustang was it had this this really careful design um, to every element of it. You know the attention to detail and you know they really worked out the the details of the aerodynamics of this uh, radiator tunnel in the rear fuselage, which which gave them the um, uh, the Meredith effect. The Curtis example was a lot less sophisticated. They weren't really working on those principles. But anyway, so that's a that's you know that's another a little myth that you get about the uh, the P fifty one that people associated with Curtis subsequently said, oh, you know, we were robbed. And you know, you you get these these lines as they say the sort of well, you know, the P forty six because they were allowed to finish making the prototype. And that came out a little while later. And Curtis people were saying, oh, well, you know, when when we were allowed to fly the, the P-46, it, it was as good as the Mustang. It wasn't. It was, you know, it was 30 miles an hour slower. Um, yeah, it, it was um, it was not a terribly good aeroplane. And, um, and uh, you know, this was sort of the story of Curtis, really, throughout the Second World War. So they, they spent the entire war trying to come up with an improvement on the P-40 and, and couldn't, um, which is, is sort of, you know, for a company of that size and experience is remarkable, really. But that's kind of a side issue to this, this story here. So first flight is on the 6th of October, 1940. Amazingly, it's sort of into RAF production by April 1941. What 
is this aircraft that you know we 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 have in our mind if you think about it probably ray hannah flying by christian bale in that definitive d d spec with the the 650 calibers what is actually the aircraft that we have that the RAF would go on to call the Mark um, I? So the, the Mustang Mark One is, so it has uh, an Allison um, V1710 V12 engine. Uh, you know, it's a high back Mustang. So it has the original um, high back uh, fuselage um, with the, the side opening canopy. Three-bladed propeller. Um, it has a rather odd armament um, of uh, because the British want eight guns because eight guns is you know what the British do at this point. The British are working on three hundred threes, three hundred three caliber machine guns, whereas the Americans have the the thirty caliber and the fifty caliber. Um, the thirty caliber, you know, it's well, it's not a great gun. It, it's sort of it's prone to jams. It's it's um, the the three hundred three has has had sort of a um, the British version of it has had some improvements which make it into a reliable weapon. And then you have the 50 cal, which is kind of the definitive medium caliber gun of the, uh, of the war. It's uh, it's a very good weapon. I don't, you know, I actually don't know why they chose uh, to include fifties in the mix, but you have this, this slightly weird um, situation of, of uh, four 50 caliber and 430 caliber guns uh, in the same airplane, which which is kind of a little bit idiosyncratic, but it's it's I presume it's kind of you know the British want eight guns, eight um, fifties is ludicrous um, by that by those standards. Obviously later on the uh, the P47 will have eight fifties, but you know it's it's a heavy gun, so the P47's got the room for eight guns. Yeah, it? yeah, and the and the engine power for it and things like that. So. Um, you know, and and it's it's a slightly odd um, arrangement. So you've got you've got two, one pair of fifty in the fifties in the wing, um, and uh, and two pairs of thirties, and one pair of fifties uh, in the chin position uh, underneath the engine. So I suppose when you think about it, you know, a V twelve engine, a good place to put guns is is by the uh, you know the crankcase. Um, when you think about it, it's the same as the BF-109. It's just that that has its engine upside down, so it has its guns on the top. We have this rather unusual... I can't think of any other fighter that had its guns in the same position as the uh, the, the Mustang Mark I, these, these, this odd kind of two gun barrels sticking out of the chin of the uh, of the Mustang, which is, is sort of a... Um, you know, uh, an unusual thing, uh, synchronised to fire through the, the prop disc. Yeah, I mean, other than that, I mean, it looks quite different to that definitive D model that you you, you mentioned earlier. You know, it diff- has different lines around the, the forward fuselage. Um, you know, it has that high back with the sort of, you know, quite heavily framed canopy, which is sort of something you associate with earlier war aircraft. Uh, but, you know, the, the fundamentals of it are the same. You know, the aerodynamics are the same. Uh, you know, it has a shallower um, scoop because, you know, obviously the, the big thing about the, the later Merlin model Mustangs is that real kind of pregnant belly that they have, uh, you know, that kind of great big gaping um, scoop, which actually is a lot neater on the Allison engined aircraft because it had a, you know, smaller radiator. Uh, you know, it, it's, it looks quite a lot different, but in its fundamentals, it's basically the same airplane. Uh, you know, they, they managed to fit um, six fifty calibers into the wing in the, uh, the D model, which was basically through changes to the, uh, the feed mechanism um you know there was no no change to the shape of the wing it didn't need bumps on the wing like you know uh, like the british were fond of doing with their aircraft um but um 
yeah so so that was so that was it uh you know it was um they said the engine about you know just over a thousand horsepower um so you know you're talking sort of the early merlin kind of sort of levels of power um and this is in 1942 so the engine's starting to look a little bit outmoded in just in terms of its pure performance and vitally that single single stage single stage yep. supercharger yep, that yeah absolutely i mean single stage single stage supercharger um which you know gives it its its uh, maximum performance at, uh, you know you can choose one altitude that, that that it gets its maximum performance out and everything else is a compromise and i think off the top of my head for the uh, for the mustang mark 1 it's about 12000 feet uh, 11 12000 feet uh, which is not great by uh, 1941 42 standards but you know uh, when they when the prototype first appears that that's uh, again an issue that they they um they, the early signs are promising but there are a few little difficulties particularly again with that engine they can't run the engine at full throttle to start with which um, is something that puzzles them for a, for a short period of time uh, and then the first prototype crashes or rather it's you know it, it has an engine failure in it it turns over on landing and they, they, they have to rebuild it. And this is, you know, this, this could be, you know, there are other programs where they, they lose the first prototype and that basically kills the program. So, you know, they, there was a bit of luck involved that, that things kept going, but they, they realized that actually the issue with the engine was the carburetor scoop. And one of the characteristic features of the early Mustangs, the, the Allison engine ones is this, this long scoop that you see um, an air scoop on the top of the engine, on the top of the cowling, um, with its intake just behind the propeller, and you know you see this on the P40s, and you see it on the the early Mustangs as well. And it's it's something that's a little bit unusual to our eyes in uh, in British circles because you know we're used to uh, um, the Merlin with its updraft carburetor and the scoop underneath, so where it's you know nice and unobtrusive, and you don't tend to see it. They discovered that, that that was too short. It's a shame because it's kind of, it's a real sort of space age design. You see the mock-up of the aircraft and this this scoop, it terminates about halfway along the cowling and it's cut back, it's sort of raked back. And, you know, and it looks all modern and, you know, a little bit Flash Gordon and then, but, you know, they decided that wasn't really working. So, you know, you've got something that was quite a lot more practical, but not quite so pretty that, that end up with this sort of, you know, this long trunk, bit of trunking along the top of the, the cowling. Those early Mustangs, it- when you compare it to say the the B model, the the, the first Merlin engine one, it's mm, it seems mm, mm. the Allison ones are slightly more top heavy, like you're saying with the pregnant yeah, yeah. Uh, radiator on the top. Because with the B, you get the Malcolm hood and everything gets a little bit more compact on the yeah, top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a slimmer nose, uh, and that was one of the things actually where you know one of the you know one of the reasons I think why the Allison Mustang doesn't it hasn't had its praises sung so so much as the the Merlin one is that uh, North American really didn't have a very good relationship with Allison, and they did with with Packard and Rolls Royce. Packard and Rolls Royce were were prepared to 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 make sort of slight changes and to to um, to accommodate North American and meet them halfway. You know, Allison were were rather you know this is your engine, take it or leave it. And they made some changes to I think it was the possibly the wiring loom or something along those lines um, before they handed over the first engine to North American. And when North American received this engine, they realised that their carefully designed cowlings didn't fit because. Allison had made this change to the engine and hadn't told them about it. So they had to then compromise the, the, the shape. There's way, when you look at the Allison Mustang um, in its nose area, it has a bit of an angle underneath. 
and you know it's a little bit angular where the, the the cowling kind of comes along straight and then it sort of angles up to the propeller and this this is we think will you know partly why it was that they had to redesign it at, at sort of fairly short notice just just to accommodate the engine yeah so so you have the situation where it's uh, you know you've got this Allison engine just over a thousand horsepower you've got your eight guns which is what the RAF asked for um you know and actually once the testing properly starts to get into gear you've got a very healthy performance you know it, it, it's sort of um knocking on 400 miles an hour and uh, you know it's it's got one thing that it has got that the RAF have been lacking is it's got a phenomenal endurance got a really really big range um you know compared to uh to, to the typical raf interceptor style fighters it's got like three or four times the the range that uh, um that these aircraft have and um that's something that um by the time the because the war's moving on quickly you know when they they first express interest in this aircraft the Battle of France is still going on. When the, the prototype first arrives, the Battle of Britain is happening. Um, by the time they're in production, you're more into a sort of fighter sweeps into, um, you know, into occupied Germany. And by the time then, you know, it's in volume production and the RAF has started to receive aircraft, uh, you know, you, you've got to the point where the, the fighter sweeps and the sort of ramrods and uh, um, circuses and things like that have had horrific losses. And uh, and the RAF is kind of moving away from those. So, you know, the, the ground is moving under the Mustang's feet the whole time it's in development. Um, and even though you've got this, you know, really remarkably quick development by the standards of the time, it's still the war has moved on from where the RAF were when they ordered it. And so, you know, you have the situation that, that actually, when it arrives, you've got a situation where you've got a, a fighter that's good up to about 12,000 feet. Um, and then above that, the engine, which doesn't quite have the amount of power, and, uh, and crucially, it delivers its power too low. Partly to do with the, the nature of the aircraft, it's because, partly because of the, the way it's constructed and those some of those developments it's quite a heavy airframe by the standards. You know, American airframes tend to be heavier than British ones anyway, but, you know, it's a heavy airframe. And actually, the one downside of it is its climb rate, uh, you know, and its critical altitude. Uh, it's, it's slow at altitude and it's slow to get there, uh, which is a bit of an issue to the RAF at the time, which, you know, air combat has been getting higher and higher and higher. At the time it arrives in RAF hands, uh, you know, you've got, you're, you're looking at the F model of the um, BF-109 and, um, you know, the the, um, the kind of combat that the uh, the RAF is involved in. They've got their, you know, Spitfire Mark 5s with the, uh, you know, uh, Merlin 45, which delivers its, you know, its critical power at quite a, a you know, quite a good altitude. And, um, you know, the Mustang suddenly doesn't fit into what the, the RAF needs for a day fighter in, the, in Northern Europe. So the aircraft that the RAF have received is not exactly what it needs at that time. But what's the American perspective on it? Because they've not been ignoring the development of it. They've been following the Mustang quite closely. Yeah. And I think this is another one of those big myths that the slow-moving American government machine initially ignored the the Mustang despite all its promise, and you know took it, it took time for it to to realise what a brilliant aircraft it had on its hands. 
actually, um, you know, the the US, uh, the material division of the, the Air Force has been really paying quite close attention to the work that um, uh, that, that Schmerd's doing at, at North American, and they're very interested in the laminar wing. And, uh, you know, there's even a point at which there's sort of there's a debate as to whether, well, should we export, you know, should we allow the export of this aircraft to the British because it is new technology and it's, it's something that we're very interested in. Uh, and again, they come to the conclusion that, um, that that they want to see how this thing performs in in the real world and and in real world combat conditions. And then they realise that actually, you know, if they get the, the British to do the donkey work of of proving this aircraft and this technology, then you know the America is the winner. And you know, so so there's this is sort of myth that they didn't um, they didn't pay attention to it. Part of the contract that the British had was that, that from the first production line, uh, they had to hand over two aircraft from from the you know from the first ten production machines to um, to the US, which which they did, and those were the aircraft that became the XP fifty one um, aircraft, of which one still exists. And uh, the I think partly where that story came from is that that when they when when those aircraft arrived at um, at the the US testing facility at uh, Wright Field, I think it was. Uh, they they weren't tested immediately, and there was a little bit of uh, um, delay before they were actually um, put into use. But you know, you consider the situation that the that that the that the Air Force, the Air Corps, has at this time, uh, which is that it's you know it's gearing up for a big modernization, a big um, you know uh, expansion, rearmament, and it has its its aircraft that it was expecting to rely on um so you know the p47 being the big one uh, so that takes priority with the testing but you know that's like in britain as with the the lancaster and the halifax you know for, for a while the um there, there was a sense that well you know lancaster's coming along it looks promising but you know the halifax is the thing that we've bet the farm on at the moment so you know we need to prioritize that and that was you know as it was with the p47 um, but you know the Americans, they did get to the to the XP fifty one, and they tested them thoroughly, um, and uh, they were you know they were very impressed. The the testing reports are, are very complimentary, very favourable. Uh, you know about all kinds of aspects of the aircraft, about how easy it was to fly, about how you know how easy it was for you know a rookie pilot to get into it and be instantly familiar with it, which is you know another huge thing with with these expansion programs. You're putting uh, pilots with relatively little training into the front line quite quickly because that's what you have to do. And you know the Mustang is an aircraft that you can put them in and they'll feel confident and they'll be able to get the most out of. So you know you've got these aspects of the Mustang, which it has these very modern high performance characteristics um it's very practical in terms of its build um it, it's very easy to mass produce because that's the way Egger Schmur designed it um and you know it's easy for pilots to 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 get hold of and and to get the most out of easily so you know it's a very you know even though it has these compromises in terms of the RAF experience which we were just talking about there's an awful lot going for the the Mustang as it originally appears. And, you know, and the Americans realize that and they understand that and they actually quite quickly place an order for aircraft for themselves. Now, that's kind of a controversial issue in itself, because the first major order they place for it is as an attack aircraft, not as a fighter. But, you know, we'll 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 um, we'll get to that 
uh, that element of it, I'm sure. But but you know, and that's you know down the line, that's another angle where people have said, uh, you know, the U.S. government because they're you know. Uh, because we don't trust the government and they're a big lumbering monolithic organization and all that kind of stuff. They didn't recognize this brilliant aircraft that this tiny little agile startup had created. And, you know, it's the, it's the American dream. Uh, that's how it's, that's how it went in America. They were very interested in it. They were very interested in its technology. They were interested in seeing it proven in combat. Uh, and, you know, they were interested in ordering it for their own air forces. It's just that they weren't, um, Things in wartime, production in wartime, uh, you know, they weren't in quite in the war yet, but there was an understanding that they probably would be. Certainly they were going to soon, they were going to be gearing up to those sorts of levels of production. And, you know, this is a super tanker. You can't turn it around immediately. They, they placed a certain amount on the P-47, on the P-40, you know, and you've got this new aircraft turning up that they know about, they're aware of, they're aware of its potential strengths but you can't just turn the ship just like that so it has to kind of find its way in uh and it takes time to do so but you know they were aware of it they were interested in it uh they you know they were actually very excited about the possibilities cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware weather-ready teak and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I could quite happily talk about the development and the the nuance of the Mustang design for the whole of this yeah, podcast, yeah. but let's, let's, let's get, let's get into some operations here. Mm. So 20, 26 squadrons, the first one to get its hands on yep. it. And it goes into an interesting role, which is perfectly suited for us. The army cooperation role in the, the tactical reconnaissance element, yep. um, where the legs of the aircraft are going to be vital for that. Mm. Mm. Um, so let, let's, let's talk about that, that initial, that initial year, 1942, because its debut is on a rather, speaking as a canadian inauspicious day yeah um well just to sort of start about the just just to talk a little bit about how it ended up with with um you know in that role to start off with which is uh, there was an organization had been formed after the uh really after the battle of france and the the failure of the army cooperation um you know, aircraft in the army cooperation role uh, and um you know how that hadn't um you know all the everything they thought they knew about army cooperation had turned out to be false and they had the aircraft like the you know western lysander which was you know very which was you know inadequate for operation in the presence of the enemy and they were using things like ferry battles and so on for the tactical reconnaissance which you know again is is unescorted in you know in uh, areas where you don't have air superiority it's it's not going to really work very, very, very polite way of talking about the very bad. Yeah, you know, it was a bloodbath. So, you know, they, they quickly revise everything they think they know about 
army, army cooperation. And this is another one of these things. Army cooperation is kind of seen to be like this niche role and this kind of little kind of corner of the RAF that, you know, guys are doing, um, you know, working with the army and, you know, it's not really bomber command, fighter command kind of stuff. Whereas when you think about the, the Royal Flying Corps in, you know, in the, on the Western Front in the First World War, it was pretty much entirely an army cooperation outfit. That was, that was really, you know, it's raison d'etre. It was, it was working with the army. It was working in concert with the army. You know, and, uh, you know, so uh, after the Battle of France, uh, they realised that actually what they need for army cooperation aircraft is our aircraft that first and foremost can survive where the enemy has air superiority. Um, so you need something with a good performance. Um, you need something that can tackle enemy fighters when it comes across them. And, you know, so you have these roles of, of tactical reconnaissance where they, they go in and, you know, getting the real time information on the battlefield and you know, what the enemy is doing and where the, the eyes on the ground can't see. Uh, and you also have, you know, a sort of, um, a, like a ground support role uh you have a sort of hampering enemy communications role and you have a little bit of a sort of interdiction role which is is sort of you know trying to hamper the enemy getting their supplies onto the you know supplies and reinforcements onto the battlefield so you have all these these sort of uh all these roles are working directly with with the army that actually you know when you add them up they're quite a, a major thing. And certainly when you're getting to the tactical air forces later on, you know, it becomes a huge part of the war. We tend to look at North Africa and the Western desert as the birth of, of this form of army cooperation. It's not called army cooperation by then, but that's what it is, um, is, is that this tactical uh, battlefield mode of uh, air combat. But but the, a big part of the nucleus of that is is um, what Army Cooperation Command is doing with the Mustangs over Northern Europe in you know 1942, 1943, 1944, um, before the invasion. And its its baptism of fire with the Mustang is as you you alluded to it um, is the 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 raid on Dieppe, um, which was this uh, attempt to see if. It was possible for an amphibious force to uh, to seize a port and hold it for a period of time uh, in order to to bring more forces and supplies ashore. Uh, and they decided to to try this um, with the port of Dieppe. It wasn't an invasion. It was just you know they didn't intend to make it a, a, a foothold. They just wanted to see if it was possible. Uh, because you know you had even even in 1942 uh, there were plans for invasions of, of northern Europe uh, and other places that you know particularly when the Americans got into the war they were really champing at the bit of you know we need to be going in and and uh, and invading so so operation you'll tell me what it was sledgehammer no hmm? sledgehammer sledgehammer in Sherbrooke. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, right, yeah. Which is mad. Take the peninsula, hold hold it for a month, and then leave. Yeah, and yeah. then Dieppe's Jubilee, isn't it? Yeah. Jubilee, that's the one. That's the one. Um, but yeah, so Operation Jubilee uh, was was really this kind of proof of concept thing of of I think a sort of um, British um, scepticism over the practicality of doing an invasion early and American enthusiasm and so on. So it was like, right, we're going to go see if we can hold a port seize a port and hold it and obviously you know canadian divisions and canadian squadrons um of the um uh that, that were part of army cooperation command were actually you know a big part of this 
So air cover is crucial. Um, tactical reconnaissance is crucial because you need to know what the, the enemy's doing with, you know, with regard to what forces they're bringing up, uh, you know, how well the, the forward units are doing it at uh, holding them back and things like that. So, so the, um, particularly the Canadian squadrons, they're thinking they're, you know, they've been training, training, training um, for months on end. Uh, they want to get into the fight and they have the chance during Operation Jubilee. And their role is not to be air-to-air. Um, their role is to, is to be going into enemy-held territory, finding out what's going on on the ground, you know, taking photographs, because the, the Mustangs by this time, they have um, modifications that, that allow them to carry an oblique camera, uh, to go in at low level, take photographs. Um, and obviously, the, and the pilots are crucial to this as well, because most of what the intelligence is is coming from the pilot. Uh, they're, you know, they're having to, to, to go in at high speed over enemy territory, um, may, you know, have a form a, uh, an accurate picture of what's going on and bring that back. Um, and in doing so, um, there, there's uh, an American called Hollis Hills who's flying with the RCAF at this point. They tangle with some Focke-Wulf 190s and, uh, and he shoots one of them down. Um, and this is the first aerial kill for the Mustang. Um, a Canadian squadron, an American pilot uh, flying an American aircraft, ordered by the British uh, within a you know British um, air force. So you know it's a pretty multinational um, effort. And uh, you know that's not what they're there for. They're not there to be tangling with enemy fighters. But the enemy fighters are trying to stop them doing their their army cooperation work. And um, you know they they uh, but you know they're able to survive in that battle space they do lose some aircraft but you know they're able to do the job and uh do the job that's required of them and it's really you know proof that giving the mustang to to army cooperation command was was what they needed and and they really kind of start to develop into this cohesive really expert force um and you know just just to sort of quickly go back to, to the origins of this um after they lose the the Lysanders um the first aircraft that they try to to equip army cooperation squadrons with is is the the early models of the uh Tomahawk uh, the the P40 um in in American um parlance but it's the Curtis Tomahawk they don't manage to do that partly because there are demands on Tomahawk for from other places uh, from the Middle East um not Middle East sorry you know North Africa that kind of way um and uh, other so other theaters for for action, acting as a fighter Awful reliability with the with the engines, particularly with these early model Allisons. With their, um, you know, they've got this odd reduction gear that uh, that doesn't doesn't really work, um, and you know keeps breaking up. They have terrible serviceability, and they're not able to to build up the squadrons in the way they want, and to to get the training in, and and to 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 get the pilot skills. So when the Mustang comes along, the RAF didn't quite know what to do with it. Um, there was a, at one point it looked as though they might be able they might just be trans, transferring them all to Russia. You know there were possibilities of, of doing you know they even looked at giving them to China. you know there was a sort of an element of the RAF that really thought you know we don't want these things. But at the same time it was recognized that um, you know they're going to be getting these supplies of these aircraft whether they ordered whatever they choose to do with them. The P40 hadn't worked out. You know they had to try and concentrate the P40 on the squadrons in the in, in North Africa. So they had this idea: we'll reserve the Mustang entirely for Army Cooperation Command, and we will make those fighter reconnaissance squadrons of Army Cooperation 
Army Cooperation Command, entirely a Mustang force. And this works out remarkably well because it means, you know, the spares operation, that's just, they get priority for that. Um, they get all the airframes. You know, there's there's uh, modifications of the airframes for British um, British service. You've only got one state of modification, which is the fighter reconnaissance modification, and it just works. And it's the perfect aircraft for this role because it's fast. It's fast at low level. You know, it's tough. Um, it's actually it has this long range. The Allison engine actually works really well in this regime, particularly in its F model with this, this uh, you know, this better reduction gear. And the one big advantage, I mean, it's actually, you know, it's kind of a remarkable engine. It's a little bit more modern than the Merlin in some ways. You know, it's got about half the moving parts of a Merlin. Um, it, it's, you know, it's really, it's really quite a sort of, you know, it has this kind of simplicity and producibility that they were doing in America at the time, you know, the Merlin is this kind of jewel-like thing that's made by craftsmen in sheds. Uh, you know, the, the V-1710 is this, is this kind of, you know, wonderful identikit modular thing that they can make in car factories and, and you know, it's, do it's, whatever with. It's a Rolex and a Casio. You pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, well, I, I, yeah, I mean, is it? Oh, it's probably not too fair. The other yeah, okay, let's let's go. Let's, yeah, but you know that's that's not a bad because um, you know your Casio is perfectly reliable and does what you want it to do. Um, but you know, so so there it is. Maybe a Seiko, <laughs> but um, but you know, so, so 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 there it is, and it works. And the the one the one huge advantage of, of the Allison is it works really well and smoothly at low RPM. So it can be brought down to, to low RPM, and this really stretches out the range that it's got. So you've got these aircraft without external fuel tanks, any kind of overload fuel uh, that can fly from the UK into Germany. And, um, you know, this is, this is something that, um, you know, British fighter pilots who've been used to having one eye on the fuel gauge, it, it's really new to them to have, have an aircraft that can just go so far and, you know, it's got a fast cruise as well. So it's, you know, uh, because of this, this high aerodynamic efficiency um, and this low drag airframe that it's got that, you know, it, it can, um, it, it fits, it works all, in all kinds of ways and it, it works well in this sort of low level, um, you know, hit and run warfare that the Army Cooperation Command is, is, uh, is developing. And they actually sort of turn what's, you know, what was intended as like a reconnaissance aircraft with a bit of ability to, to hit back if they're, if they're bounced. And they turn it into something that actually has quite a major offensive role, uh, just with, you know, again, without hanging any bombs off it or rockets or, or even cannon, they're able to be really quite destructive of, uh, of, of Axis communications um, all over, you know, all over occupied France, Holland, Germany. Um, in particular, train busting is a thing that they do because, you know, uh, 50 cal machine guns against a train is, is, uh, is actually quite effective. You know, you can, you can burst the boiler with a few rounds of 50 cal. You know, they were finding that, uh, um, you know, if, if you burst the boiler on a train, it blows the, the, the fire out of the, uh, the, the firebox into the cab. And train drivers aren't very fond of that happening to the extent where, you know, Allied intelligence reports were saying that in, in occupied France, they were starting to struggle. To, the Germans were starting to struggle to recruit train drivers because of all the train busting that was going on and the sort of, you know, rather dangerous position that they were in um, if they were driving trains across uh, 
you know, across France and, you know, even into, you know, even to sort of Belgium, Holland, Germany even. And, you know, they were doing this kind of hit and run um, raids all over all the same time as while gathering intelligence and taking photographs and, uh, you know, making a real nuisance of themselves when it was the only kind of daylight raiding that the Allies were able to do over the occupied countries. Obviously, they were sending bombers over at night, but, uh, you know, nothing really but a Mustang at this point was capable of surviving so far into occupied territory and making a, you know, and doing some harm and coming back. Let's jump ahead to the the other theater where it's, Mm, mm, it's mm, legend mm. starts to be solidified, which is North Africa. It's an interesting role it has in those, in those days before say Sicily and Italy, because this is the point where they do start hanging things off the bottom of it. Yeah. And you do have, the slightly tricky nomenclature issues because you also have the A thirty six in <laughs> yeah. the theatre as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, the I mean, the first uh, U.S. squadrons in in North Africa are tactical reconnaissance squadrons. The Americans have learned very well from the British experience, um, and the first Mustangs they acquire are actually Mustangs that are held back from a uh, from a British order. The British have been trying to get cannons on these things ever since they they you know the early days of them ordering them. Um, and uh, the American production of cannons is not going well. And they finally get this model, which is the, um, the North American Model 91, um, which is known to the British as the Mustang Mark 1A, which is pretty much a Mustang Mark 1, but it's got four 20 mil cannon on the wings, which is by now the standard fighter armament. And the Americans call these things P-51, no suffix which is really confusing because, you know, P-51 is used as a generic term, but it's also the specific term for these particular, you know, 54 they had of them, uh, Mustangs, which are the first ones. And they fit them out as tactical reconnaissance aircraft with using the lessons very much of the British um, experience with an oblique camera. They also add a vertical camera under the fuselage, which, uh, which you know, then the, goes back to the British and the British start using that attachment. And, you know, they're, they're doing the same kind of work in North Africa. But then hot on the heels of, the, um, of these early fighter reconnaissance Mustangs is this model called the A36, which is the first Mustang that the, the Americans actually order for themselves. And this thing really, again, it doubles down on the low-level role. They've got a different model of Allison in there, which gives its, its maximum power at 3,500 feet. So it's total low-level specialist. And this goes back really quite a long time into the sort of dive bomber, uh, you know, debate um, in the army and the Navy, which again, I won't go into. We go into this in the book. I recommend read the book for all the background on this because it's fascinating background, but it's, it's an awful lot of not Mustangs before you get to Mustangs. And really right in the late of the day, the Americans realize that the dive bombers they have and that they're developing are not going to be survivable in the battle space. They're not going to have the performance. So Dutch Kindleberger, him again, turns up, says to the Army Air Force, look, we've got this aircraft that, that performs, you know, it's a hot rod at low level. It's, it can carry a lot of weight, which we know because we f- you know, fill it full of massive amounts of fuel. And, you know, it can, it can carry a lot of stuff without, uh, you know, without really degrading its performance too much. We can fit this thing out as an attack aircraft and we can get it to you in double quick time. And Dutch Kindleberger is very interested in this because it keeps the Mustang production line open because we've got a, a slight issue where the, the, the US now being in the war in early 1942, they're suddenly rushing to catch up and they want 
you know, they want bombers. They want, uh, you know, they want um, B-25s uh, by the, you know, by the thousand. The British have their orders for the Mustang and the British want more Mustangs, but the US are by this time saying, look, we have priority over orders. So by selling this attack version of the Mustang, Dutch Kindleberger is able to keep the Mustang production line alive. And that's what he's chiefly interested in doing. Uh, the interesting thing about the the attack version of the Mustang is they try they they propose all kinds of stuff for this uh, this this aircraft. There's a a version which has 37 millimeter cannon in the wings, like the you know the tank busting Hurricane Mark II D. And you know I'd have loved to have seen this actually because it's a really kind of neat installation. There's a slight bulge under the wing. Uh, but, you know, this whole thing is buried in the wing. Um, and, you know, just to go back to that laminar flow wing again, the beauty of it is the Spitfire gets all its performance from having a very, very thin wing. Uh, the laminar flow wing can get the same kind of performance and be much thicker. So you then have structural benefits, you have space benefits, you can fit more fuel in it, you can fit more weapons in it. But, they, you know, the Army decide they don't want this massive 37mm cannon, but, you know, they do want bombs and they do want dive brakes. Which, because, you know, you've got the American obsession with the dive bomber at this point, you know, it's something that through the sort of 20s and 30s, they're mad keen on dive bombing, particularly the US Navy. Uh, and it's this phenomenally accurate way of delivering weapons onto a target. And you've had this the Stuka early in the war. For, sudden, for, for a while, everyone's rushing to get a dive bomber. Uh, and that dies out quite quickly. But you've got this this really high-performance aircraft, and they decide to put dive brakes on the wings, which kind of messes up the laminar flow to an extent, but, you know, it, North American's able to make it work. And it doesn't really degrade its performance as a fighter. You've still got, got six 50-cal guns in this. So they've got four in the wings and two in the chin position. And you can hang up to a 500-pound bomb um, off each wing, you know, you don't need a, a swinging crutch or anything like that, like the Stuka has, because you've know, got the bombs on the wings, so they're not going to hit the prop on the way down. You can do vertical dives with this thing. You, absolute pinpoint accuracy. And, you know, it's the, it's like the, you know, the, the, the Typhoon and the F-35, this, a swing roll aircraft. It can fight its way to the target. It can deliver its weapons on target, and it can act as a fighter on the way out. Uh, you know, it's, it's, this, it's, a, it's a remarkable machine. As long as you stay at low level, you're fine. Yeah, anything much above 10,000 and the, uh, the the A36 is kind of, you know, it's not very happy anymore. You would be hard-pressed to spot the difference, really, with the A36, unless you knew what you were Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's a very, very clean installation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, there are there, there are photos of, of the A36 from, from certain angles, and, yeah, you wouldn't tell it from an early model Mustang. It doesn't have the sort of lumps and bumps on the most um, dive bombers of the time. The competition is things like the, you know, the other things the Army has are things like the the A31, which is their version of the Vultee Vengeance, which you know the British uh, and the Indian Air Force and the, the Australians use with some success in Burma, but it's still, you know, it needs fighter escort, really. And the A25, which is a sort of a denavalized version of the, the SB2C Helldiver, which again was sort of massively troubled development, but also it didn't have the kind of performance that, that could live in... Um, against uh, enemy fighters unless you had a, a heavy fighter escort. So, you know, the A36 was this really sort of one-of-a-kind 
fighter bomber in that it could you know it could do steep dives which you know other other fighters later in the war when they, they sort of hung bombs off them you know were very very effective but but you couldn't maybe do more than a sort of you know 45 degree dive and uh, and the a36 is incredibly versatile because you could use it as a fighter um it, it was it was used successfully as a, as a long-range escort to uh, to medium bombers in the uh, in the mediterranean theater you know when they were you know, doing the assault on on Sicily and uh, and the other islands, uh, and then on the the Italian mainland, um, you know, it was used as a tactical reconnaissance aircraft. Uh, you know, it could be because it had the same, it could have the same camera installation as the the tactical reconnaissance Mustang. So you could just bolt these things on and and go and use it as a tactical reconnaissance aircraft, which the RAF did. They they borrowed. A, a series of A36s from the Americans and used them in tactical reconnaissance in the Mediterranean, and you know, and the Americans used used them in the same role. It was, um, it, you know, it's this remarkable aircraft that, that just, you know, very little is, is written about. And can we just hear while we're on the A36 two words about the Apache name, which is completely fallacious. It was never applied to the A36 before we think the 1970s. There's a chap called Michael Verassi, um, who uh, sadly died a couple of years ago, who did an immense amount of work on this. And, you know, he, he went through, you know, reams and reams of paperwork and could not come up with any connection between the Apache name and the A-36 aircraft before the 1970s. Uh, where he believed it started was an issue of Air Classics um, in, in the mid-1970s. Um, and then that got passed on to a squadron signal title. And from then on, you know, it, uh, you know, it, it just it just gathered momentum, and to the extent where you had museums putting signage on their their A thirty sixes, calling it A thirty six Apache, because they felt by then that nobody would know what this aircraft was that didn't have that name on it. And a guy called Tom Griffiths, who's is sort of uh, he runs uh, the, the the Facebook P fifty one group, you know, has had this long correspondence with the with the USAF mu- museum to try and get them to change their the signage on their A36 which they have now done which you know credit to Tom to, for his persistence to do that the name Apache well again this is, is probably you know it's not the time or place to go into but it, it was at one point North American's favored name for the Mustang but it was out of the picture by the time the A36 came along and there's some debate over whether or when it was applied officially to early models of Mustang, but you know, on the American side, when they were trying to sell it to the Americans, they, they were calling it Apache in there. Uh, so you'll find adverts, magazine adverts, talking about the North American Apache, but that's not the A36, that's earlier models. Anyway, so, so the, you had two attack groups by this time that were that were fully equipped with the the a36 so uh six squadrons of it in the in the uh the mediterranean theater and you know they were quite a major part of the the initial drive you know the the invasion of sicily the conquest of sicily and then the allied drive into uh into italy itself and they they played quite a crucial role in that which i think is 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 fairly underappreciated these days and again, the range comes into it again. Massively, they're yeah. able to quite ha- happily operate from Tunisia, yeah, whereas yeah. a lot of the other aircraft couldn't. Yeah. Where Malta was basically that aircraft carrier, and the Mustangs were just happily trundling across the Med doing their thing. Yeah, 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 absolutely so. And you know, there the, the were, um, you know, they were based in in North Africa and staging across to Sicily. 
and the other islands and they were able to, to do this without you know without any external fuel tanks even just on the internal fuel um but, you know which is which is handy because you know you can hang bombs off it and you know you, you don't need the space for a for a fuel tank which was which was the great issue with with the typhoon was as soon as mm. it needed to go any 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 decent amount of distance you had to take four rockets off it or one bomb yeah yeah and that's the thing i never understood about the typhoon because the thing is huge there must be loads of room for fuel well what, what are they doing with all that internal space but you know that's that's probably a story for another time yes we we, we, we can geek out about that another yeah, time yeah. but um, um let's let's race ahead mm. one of the, one of the things that when we're talking about dieppe and that oblique cameras mm. those low level images of, of the battle at dieppe are, are really impressive mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we're talking to to david o'keefe next week about his work on on dieppe and he's in his book he's got oh, lots cool. of those images yeah yeah and the thing that a lot of people will know or have seen in books about d-day mm. are low level images of the battles going on on the beach yeah and those were the takar mustangs flying a crazy number of missions on the 6th of june yeah yeah um, and 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 beforehand especially with the um uh the, the noble missions against the v1 sites yeah in the months beforehand. Yeah. They had so many roles that were that involved directly in d-day so first off they they, they were both british and american allison mustang tactical reconnaissance squadrons were heavily involved in photographing the entire coast and all the coastal defences and building up just that detailed picture of the defences in order to, that the invasion could happen at all. In order to do that and not give away the game as to where the invasion was going to hit, they had to actually photograph you know, much larger stretches of coast than they, than they needed. But, you know, they, they were able to do this. And we're talking about a you know, small number of airframes by this time. And importance is sort of well out of proportion to the, to the number of aircraft there were. And then there were several Allison Mustang squadrons that were involved in gunnery spotting for the the Royal Navy uh, and you know and US Navy heavy warships so they were training 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 in the weeks coming up to to D-Day familiarizing themselves with the ships and actually building up this close working relationship and you know from a, a small single seat fighter aircraft directing the guns of a battleship onto specific targets and then once they'd finished that you know, gained a bit of a beachhead and, and destroyed sort of mass counterattacks and things like that. Then they switched to their tactical reconnaissance role. And there were other squadrons that were doing tactical reconnaissance on the whole day. So they were doing their um, gunnery spotting and then switching halfway through the day to, to TACAR. And yeah, like you, like you say, it was it was a critical job and, and getting those pictures, you know, those oblique photographs. Is you think, well, how low were they flying? And, you know, the speed they were flying as well. And to be able to, to get that sort of precise photography of, of, of a particular target is just sort of astonishing, really. But it's, it's, you know, a lot of it is down to the training of the pilots and the skill of the pilots and the, the skill of the planning as well. Because, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is just the planning of these missions was incredibly done in minute detail. And, uh, you know, that, that was a big part of its success. But the quality of the aircraft was the, was the other fact. At this point, when the RAF was starting to run out of, of Allison Mustang airframes, um, it, it was looking into what could conceivably replace it, and reluctantly came to the conclusion that, the, you know, the best thing to replace an Allison Mustang was another Allison Mustang. But, you know, it was unfortunate that at this point they were going to have to find something else to try and do that job because, but, you know, there really was nothing else with the 
the speed, the range, the stability at low level, the manoeuvrability at low level, the, the, the sort of the survivability of it, you know, the economy and, and, and all those factors. There was, there was just nothing else that quite matched the, you know, you, there were aircraft that matched the Mustang, the Allison Mustang on certain aspects of that, but there was no other aircraft that, that matched it on everything. Just on the, on the planning bit, one of the mm. bits I found fascinating in your book is just how minutely timed those missions were so that they would more than one aircraft would converge on a target or mm. a photo op just at the right moment so as to not to show up where they were going or what yeah. they were doing yeah it's it's you know remarkable because you just sort of think all right we're going we're going down there we're going to take some pictures and then we'll shoot some stuff up coming back yeah. but yeah a hell of a lot more goes into it than, than oh that. massively yeah i mean they, they had these sort of very precise zigzags planned so that each leg of the zigzag was planned to be a sufficient length that by the time the position and course and speed of the aircraft had been noted and passed on, the aircraft was now on a significantly different course. So, so when the interception was called, it went to the wrong place. And so they, they were, you know, doing this in order to dodge the, the enemy defences. You think of it as like this sort of free-ranging mission to go and shoot up trains or, or motor transport or whatever, but actually they were, you know, they were planned to, to hit a road or a railway or a canal or whatever at a particular point at a particular time from a particular direction. And then they would sort of fly along the, uh, you know, they would, they would kind of merge parallel with, with the railway or whatever, and then hop over to be, you know, on the, the railway that would be in opposite direction to it, to the prevailing traffic there. So, you know, you'd meet a train head on pepper that cut away before you get to a station because stations hide flak traps. You know, and another thing that, that fascinated me about the, the Allison Mustang story, really, the whole thing, was how much kind of cross-pollination there was between different arms of different air arms. And they were learning this stuff in the British and Canadian squadrons that was then filtering through to the American squadrons, you know, and then other British squadrons in the, in the Med. And then there were sort of American experiences in the Med that were then filtering back to to the British squadrons and there were, you know, it was, it was really, they were, and then, you know, out into China, Burma, India, but, you know, there was a one particular incident from the, from the med where they were doing this um, rhubarb type mission where you sort of armed reconnaissance mission where there were, you know, four, I think A36s uh, doing this mission, which was very, very similar to the ones that the British were doing in, in you know, over France, Germany and so on. They, they kind of came along a, a railway track, which, you know, train, a troop train coming the other way. So they absolutely riddled that and moving, just come up to a station, you know, and they, they even have the, this, they sort of plan it in such a way that the, the first aircraft to go in will, will fire on the target and then move aside uh, for the other aircraft to come through and then hit the same target. So, and the, the, uh, the reasoning for this is, so no aircraft ends up running down its ammunition more than any other. So if they do then run into trouble, each aircraft has a reserve of ammunition, uh, you know, and they, they, they kind of, they thought through this stuff and they worked it out. But, you know, they happened to hit, there was an ammo dump at this, at this station that they weren't expecting. They were, you know, firing on it and then explosion. The flames were seen approximately 3,000 feet into the air. One of the Mustangs just flew, flies right into this and just doesn't have a chance. One of the aircraft that's alongside, you know, has the whole of the sort of side of the aircraft stove in 
uh, you know, the whole airframe's bent like a banana. The guy's trying to fly with the cockpit canopy over his arms because it's been it's been blown out. And you know, he manages to get it back to the the airfield and uh, and make a safe landing. Actually, the mission was quite similar in in various parts of Europe and you know even off into the Far East and they were they were using this knowledge to sort of build and build and build and make the the air forces more and more effective so to to wrap up because we've been we've been nattering for quite a while ah uh, yeah sorry about that no this is I've 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 loved it and I'm I'm sure the AV geeks of the history hack clan will be loving it as well so I guess we can say really that the the aircraft's operational life petered out not mainly because it wasn't a good aircraft. It was just basically that the, the design had moved on. The requirement to have the Mustang as a long range aircraft mm. superseded mm. this, this, this continuing need that was there for the, the entire conflict to have this rather robust, very long range, very fast ground attack aircraft that it, the rest of the war just moved on from. Yeah. I mean, somewhat, I mean, I think the, the, in an ideal world, um, I think both the British and the Americans would have had more Allison Mustangs you know, throughout the war. And and just sort of a word here about the P-51A, which was the sort of definitive Allison Mustang, Mustang Mark II in RAF service, which had you know a further developed version of the the Allison, which still had a single stage supercharger, but was you know it was more powerful and it 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 delivered its its power somewhat higher. So it was a good low and medium altitude fighter and you know probably on about equal terms with say the tempest something like that in terms of its its you know the, the sort of altitude profile it was just worked out that really there was too much difference between the allison mustang and the merlin mustang it needed too many changes to its airframe to fit them the merlin in effectively to have two parallel um, production lines. The important aircraft to have for the for the for the major war effort was the Merlin one. So the Allison one was was sacrificed. It was in slightly more niche roles than the than the Merlin one. I mean, it, you know, let's let's face it. It was a better fighter bomber than the Merlin Mustang. Not that the Merlin Mustang was a bad fighter bomber. It was you know it did very well in that role. But you know the Allison aircraft was more ideally suited to that and you know it was useful in the far east but again they were just running out of airframes by that time and the production priorities went with the the merlin one but which is was you know again i think there's this idea that because the, the allison mustang was superseded uh, that, that that meant that you know that it was outmoded which it wasn't uh, i think given the choice you know and there there is documentary evidence that, that both the british and americans would have liked to continue with both but uh, unfortunately, from a production perspective, it wasn't possible to do that. You know, they, they were around until the end of the war. Uh, and uh, really, it was just practicalities that, that saw them put to one side. You never get the perfect aircraft for every role. You always have to make do. Um, and in, in this case, there was a trade-off. They needed the Mustang, the Merlin Mustang, more at that particular point during the war. And that that's the way it happened. But then who's to say that actually... You know, two TAF with um, with more squadrons of Mustang Mark IIs, um, and you know, in the in the Pacific, more squadrons of uh, of P fifty one As wouldn't have actually done you know a great job when they were were doing that um, ground attack and also low level um, you know fighter bomber you know free ranging kind of thing that uh, that was that was really quite important in the later part of the war. So I think we shouldn't do the Allison Mustang down in that regard. And you sort of think as well that 
that additional loiter that the mm. the Allison Mustangs had, especially in the environment that Tutaf would be operating in in sort of mm. late forty four, yeah. trying to keep up with the advance, pro- probably probably a bit vital because you know the the heavier aircraft had to operate from places they shouldn't have been. You know the, the Typhoon, for example, from mm. rather mm. rough yeah. and ready strips just to keep them keep them within range, whereas you could have the Mustang back on those rather empty purpose built fields in England doing the same job. Yeah, yeah. And even then when you do need to to operate from uh, from temporary airstrips, the the Mustangs uh, you know it, it does so a little bit better from than than those because you know there were you know when when the Mustang started to get replaced with the P47 in the med, uh, they found all kinds of tr- trouble with yeah, the P47 can 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 lug a thousand pounder on each wing, but we need a concrete runway. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, um, certainly when the weather turned bad, um, the, the, the Mustang was more, uh, versatile in terms of where it could operate from as well. So, you know, there's, there are options that it gives you, uh, that you don't necessarily have with other aircraft, but uh, unfortunately will, that'll always be a bit of a what if, because it, uh, you know, it never, they didn't have the numbers of aircraft at that point in the war. What a great place to end on a fun counterfactual. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, I always love a what if. <laughs> um, Matt, that's been absolutely fantastic. And I think I think your your book is equally fascinating in that the things we've only touched on here that you go into some superb depth. And to, to show that the myth busting in this case is is needed because this was a, a fantastic aircraft that did, you know, a job as long as the airframes were around to do it. Mm, it wasn't mm. It wasn't replaced and there wasn't a need for it to be replaced as such. Um, they just ran out of them. Yeah, yeah. And that's the, that's the sad truth. And thanks ever so much for, for giving me the opportunity to, to witter on about it. Because I say, it's something I've sort of come quite an- evangelical about. Um, and also I think just in terms of unsung heroes, uh, I just want to mention here um, Bob Sickle, who really without him, the book wouldn't have happened. Uh, you know, he's, he's sort of, I met him through the, the, the P-51 SIG I mean, he's an expert on not just Mustangs. He's he's you know he knows way more about the RAF than I do, uh, and so on. He's he's uh, based over in New England um, rather than the proper one. Um, he won't like me for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, so you know, big shout out to Bob. Um, thanks to Bob, who's you know did masses of research, editing on the book, and just and also really just the main thing was just asking the questions. Like kept pushing me in terms of assumptions that I'd made when I was writing a bit of it and, and just, you know, are you sure about that? You know, what about X, Y, and Z and pushing me to look at the context and the wider context. And I think that's where the story comes in is that you, you can look at the thing in isolation, but when you fit it into the context of the war and the development, that's when you start to understand, I think. Perfect. So what's the book called? When's it out? Um, it's called Mustang, The Untold Story. Um, and it has a longer subtitle about the uh, the development operation and uh, something else of the um, Allison engine Mustangs. It's from Key Publishing, um, who published Flypast and uh, various other things. It is out soonish, possibly February, March. We don't have an actual date for it yet, but you know, it, it's in the works and it will be soon. I'd like to thank Matt once again for joining us on History Hack Hedgehopping for this bumper feature-length dive into Allison Mustangs. We've got lots more going on across the pod. We've also today a history of Chinese food with Jonathan Clement, which sounds delicious. And tomorrow we have the fascinating insights into Irish women and political activism in the 19th century. So please join the boss ladies for that. 
And now we ask you for your support to help History Hack keep going through 2021. In 2020, when the boss ladies Alex and Alina started History Hack, the world was very strange. And unfortunately, it looks like 2021 is going to be equally strange. We would love it if you're able to support the podcast in any way. It will allow us to keep up the regularity of the pods and also the great guests that we've been able to bring you over the last year. We exist on Patreon as History Hack and also on Podbean, our podcast host's own platform called Patreon. The reward tiers are being updated at the moment, so there's going to be some fantastic options for you to choose from. So if you're able to support us, that would be fantastic. So we thank you very much and until the next time. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.